Find a seat. I've uh, got this mic we can pass around so everyone can hear. A lot of us are preachers and are used to talking loud, but I want to be sure everyone hears the question. And Dr. Chris will uh, interact with us some. All right, who would like to be brave and ask the first question? All right. Uh, Dr. Crisp, is there any relationship between Rahner's rule and the Hegelian thesis? Um, so Rahner's rule is the uh, is the idea that, coined by Karl Rahner in the 20th century that the imminent Trinity, that is God as he is in himself, is identical to the economic Trinity, that is God as he is to us in creation and salvation, and vice versa. All right. Um, yeah, I suppose th- there's definitely a relationship. I-, I was trying to indicate something of the relationship in what I was saying about Bruce McCormack's stuff. Um, and I suppose there's this worry that Rana's rule um, is getting at, that you've, a kind of anxiety, if you like, that you find, I suppose, in quite a bit of 20th century uh, systematic theology that focuses on the Trinity, an anxiety about um, trying to make sure that God, as he is in himself, as it were, the imminent trinity, is the same as the economic trinity. We don't, we don't bifurcate the two. That's the way I was describing it in the lecture. So uh, I suppose that is something that feeds into what I was calling the Hegelian thesis because that's one of the motivators for people like Bruce. They want to say, well, we can't have some imminent trinity that, that turns out to be different from the economic trinity. That's, that's a real problem. Uh, and so to preserve Rana's rule, we've got to find some way of making sure that we've got these two things that are not just cohering or, or um, fitting well with one another, but are in some sense identical. And I guess I'm, my feeling is that either Rana's rule is trivially true, it doesn't tell us anything interesting, because of course if, the, if God is triune, then... God as he is in himself is the same as God as he is to us. Um, or it's, 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 not, it's false. It's either trivially true or false. It would be false because of the things I've said in, in the lecture in terms of there must be something about God's inner life that we just don't have access to. So it's not like we're um, positing a God behind God that's inappropriate. It's necessarily the case of God's atemporal that there's, there's a huge tract of the divine life that we don't have any access to. But that's not weird because that would be true of us anyway in some smaller sense, right? Um, so if we want to reject the Hegelian theory and we want to kind of hold on to this, the atemporality of God, hmm. um, given that Christ became sin for us and that he's incarnated and continues to be, in a sense, glorified, incarnated, and that the Trinity was split for a time, you know, during the Passion. Is there a sense that there's some sort of, like, ontological transition that God has kind of undergone? So, yeah, there are people in modern theologians who make exactly that point. I mean, for reasons of space, I didn't go on into some of that. But so Jürgen Moltmann, most famously perhaps in his book, The Crucified God, argues that there was this kind of um, this kind of uh, 
division in the Godhead that happens at the crucifixion. Uh, and for this reason, he thinks the whole idea of God being outside of time and impassable, you know, in, in other words, incapable of emotional change and immutable in some strong sense, these things are hopeless. We've got to get rid of them. That's just not what we find in the cross, and the cross tells us what God's really like. Uh, and a lot of people have followed that sort of lead in contemporary theology. So these days, it, those who think that God is eternal and immutable and impassable, uh, so without change, that's immutable, and without emotional change, that's impossible, are very much in the minority in um, Christian theology. They're, they're, it's making something of a comeback. People like Paul Gavrilak's book has been really helpful, I think, and there have been a number of, number of other things like um, Tom Wynandy's stuff that's been, been helpful pushback. My own view, though, is that <clears throat> the Maltmanian sort of trend that you see in, in modern theology is a mistake. Um, as, again, as I tried to indicate in the lecture. I don't think, for example, that because Christ, because the second person of the Trinity assumes human nature forevermore, so as it were there's a human face to God forevermore, um, that therefore God in himself, in his own life, must know change and must undergo emotional change. I just don't think that follows. And I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, the fathers of the church knew this, and they still talked about the impassable suffering. It's not like they didn't have a clue about what it meant to claim that God, who's unchanging and immutable, uh, takes on a human nature that's changing and mutable. Um, they just construed that differently from the moderns. They just took it to, to mean something different. And similarly, in the case of the crucifixion, I, I would not agree that uh, there's a, a division in the Godhead at the moment of the cry of dereliction. Great, that's, that's really helpful. How would you then interpret both the, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, but also the understanding of, you know, Christ became sin so that we might become sons of God in an idea. Of course, sin is... Yeah. Well, okay, so you're asking two big questions there. Um, <laughs> let, me take the, let me take the latter first, because it's marginally easier. Um, I'm on a, I, I can't pretend I don't have views on this. So my, my view on the Christ becoming sin for us is that, again, let, let me start with the, the modern uh, stuff. There are some people who say today uh, Christ takes on a fallen but not sinful human nature. I deny that. I don't think that's true. I think that Christ assumes a human nature that's without sin um, and by, making, by uniting himself to a, a human nature that's without sin, that human nature becomes constitutionally impeccable. That is to say, it becomes incapable of sinning. It's rendered incapable of sinning by being united to a divine person. Why? Well, because God is constitutionally incapable of sinning. It's not merely that God doesn't sin, but he's incapable of sinning. Right? That's what impeccability is, as opposed to sinlessness, which is just you could sin, but you don't. So it seems to me to mistake to think that, that Christ is merely sinless, because then there are possible worlds at which Christ sins. But that seems to me to be metaphysically impossible if Christ is God incarnate, because God can't sin. Um, well, what do I do with those passages that talk about Christ becoming sin for us or being made in the likeness of sinful flesh, those sorts of things? Well, I would say, yeah, he is. Um, he does become a human being, truly and really. Um, and that he does take upon himself, in some sense, our sin in uh, his, his uh, 
supremely, I suppose, on the cross, in the, in the work that he does on the cross. Um, so there is some kind of substitutionary component to what happens at the cross. Uh, I might be willing to even say that he does actually become sin in some sense, but I, I, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure how I would cash that out, to be honest with you. So I, I, that's what I say to the first thing. Christ is, is sinless. He's constitutionally impeccable as a divine person. So he can't have a fallen human nature, and he can't be a sinner, obviously, because otherwise he'd, he'd need saving himself. Um, he can't have a fallen human nature because I think a fallen human nature implies um, being in a morally vitiated state. Uh, so people try to drive a wedge between fall, being a, having a fallen human nature and being a sinner, but I don't think I think that's a distinction without a difference. Um, on the question of the, derelict, the cry of dereliction on the cross, I mean, nobody has, a, a, has an adequate answer to that question. Right? It's, a bit like, it's a bit like the question uh, of the authorship of evil. Nobody has an adequate answer to that question. Um, so, I mean, I take some comfort in that. Um, I guess I would say, what would I say? Well, I'd, I'd, I'd start with what I'm sure of, which is that uh, the second person of the Trinity can't be um, divided from other members of the Divine Trinity if we have an orthodox account of the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, so whatever it is that Christ is enduring on the cross that makes him cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It can't be some metaphysical division in the Godhead, which is what someone like Moltmann seems to be Suggesting That just can't be the case, because if, if it is the case, then you don't have an orthodox of the Trinity anymore. Um, well, what is it then? Well, perhaps, and this is me just kind of riffing here, so I'm, I'm just saying perhaps this is the case. Perhaps what's happening is uh, Christ as human, or in his human nature, in acting as he does as the sin-bearer on the cross, um, has this existential sense of the awfulness of that condition as a human. And that leads to his cry of dereliction. I, that's not an unproblematic thing to say. I'm, I'm well aware of that, but I think that's about the best that I can manage at the moment. Thank you. I appreciate it. Let's take one more question, then we'll need to move on. <clears throat> Mine's really quick. Will we get Q&A after the second part? We'll see how much time we have left. <laughs> <laughs> You maybe can catch him after we're through with two, but we do need to stop. Well, their appetites are wet now, and you want to hear me to hear the second. <laughs> <laughs> okay. quick, quick question from Carl. Thank you. Just to f follow up on uh, Nathan's question about the impeccable nature of Christ, hmm. uh, could you uh, comment on what you would say um, regarding Christ's temptation? Yeah, so this is, this is the sort of test case for... Um, questions about Christ's sinlessness, right? Hebrews 4.15, also in Hebrews 2, right? He was like us in every way, sin accepted. Um, and so people ask, uh, well, if Christ really tempted in the wilderness, um, if you're saying that Christ is incapable of sinning, that doesn't, doesn't this make his temptations a kind of charade? He's pretending like, oh, yes, I could turn these stones into bread. He doesn't really feel the gravitational pull of that temptation. Um, I think the view that I've kind of very briefly alluded to here uh, is, a, is maybe a way of rebutting that worry. 
So, because on the view that I've um, set out, or, or the view that I've kind of alluded to here, I, I have written about this. Um, Christ's human nature, like any human nature, is capable of sinning, unlike our human nature, it's without sin. It'd be like an Adamic human nature, right? Capable of sinning, but without sin. Um, by being united to a divine person, it's rendered incapable of sinning constitutionally. Um, but what that means, I think, is that he's, his human nature is capable of feeling the gravitational pull of at least a certain class of temptations, namely those temptations that don't require his human nature to already be in a state of sin. Now, I suppose there are going to be some, some temptations that you'll only feel the gravitational pull of if you're already in a state of sin, committing murder, for example, I suppose, right? given what Christ says about murder in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, but maybe there's a class of temptations that you can feel the pull of without being already in a state of sin. And I suppose that's exactly what's happening in the Eden story. Uh, it looks like if on the Eden story, uh, that class of temptations has to do with disobeying divine commands. I mean, that's what happens in Eden, right? They disobey divine command. They bring us in the state, they, they have the divine command, and they say, okay, we're going to do our own thing. Well, isn't that precise of what we see in the life of Christ and the temptations in the wilderness? He's, he's being asked to contravene divine commands, and he resists the temptation. So perhaps you can, there's, a, there's a class of temptations where he doesn't have to be in a state of sin himself to feel a gravitational pull in his human nature. But either he resists those temptations in his human nature, and therefore doesn't sin, or... If, as it were, his human nature were about to succumb to those temptations, his, his divine nature, so to speak, steps in and prevents that from happening. I guess my sense is that God places Christ, Christ's human nature in, in circumstances where his human nature is able to withstand those temptations. But in any case, whatever the particulars of the scenario are, metaphysically speaking, on that view, it would be true to say that Christ really feels the gravitational pull of sin, but he never, it's, he's, he's never in a circumstance where he's going to sin. Just to give you one example to, to sort of try and explain what I'm getting at. Imagine, this is an example I use in the classroom all the time. Imagine you've got an invincible pugilist, an invincible boxer in the ring. Anybody who gets in the ring with the boxer is not going to win because the boxer is invincible. That doesn't mean there's not going to be a struggle or a real fight. Right? It's just that the outcome is known in advance in virtue of the fact that this boxer has the property of being invincible. I think something similar is true of Christ. It's not that there's no struggle with sin. It's that the outcome is known in advance. He's not going to succumb.